Well, since it is the the first Sunday of the month, we have uh, the joy and the the pleasure of uh, sharing it in the Lord's table uh, together. Uh, And in uh, speaking about the Lord's table this morning, if you have your Bibles with me, uh, would you open them, please, to uh, Joel chapter 2. We read uh, Joel earlier this month in our reading plan. I thought it would maybe a good good place to, to look at and examine. And really, when we... When we are celebrating communion, we, we're celebrating what God has done for us in His Son, Jesus Christ. Amen? Uh, and you can get to there anywhere in Scripture. Uh, and what I, I'd like to, to look at this morning is Joel chapter 2, verse 28 to 32. But uh, as you're turning there to, to Joel, you, could, you can divide the book of Joel in half. Uh, and the first half of the book of Joel speaks of... Uh, what's known as the day of the Lord, uh, but it's the day of the Lord that's already taken place in terms of a judgment upon the nation of Judah for their uh, rebellion. Uh, and uh, that has taken place in the past, and that's chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 2, verse 17. And then chapter 2, verse 18, through the end of the book, speaks of the future day of the Lord. Uh, and that is a much more severe and serious day of the Lord. Uh, and that is when not uh, Judah and Israel who will be judged, but the whole world. Uh, and at that point in time, uh, Israel and Judah will be restored uh, to their prominence, to their position in God's plan. Uh, and so the first half of the book of Joel has already taken place. And the second half of Joel is yet to take place. Uh, And in uh, speaking of the future day of the Lord, uh, in chapter 2, verses 21 to 27, Joel speaks of material restoration. Uh, Israel was judged and their land was, in essence, devoured uh, up, whether it would be by locusts or uh, an an army of uh, foreigners invading. But their land was gone. And what God promised was that he would restore what was eaten. He would restore what was taken away and that Israel would then be blessed uh, in that uh, capacity. In that same way that they had been uh, judged and had their goods taken away from them, God would bring restoration to them. And then in chapter 3, verse 1, through the end of the chapter, uh, God speaks about the national restoration that would take place with Israel. That he would gather them from all of the nations and restore them. And in between those two sections comes a little portion uh, where God speaks of the spiritual restoration that would take place at that same time. Uh, And that's the portion that I would draw your attention to this morning. Joel chapter 2, read with me, beginning in verse 28. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. And if that sounds familiar to you, 
It's because the Apostle Peter quotes this passage in his famous sermon in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, uh, when the Spirit comes and dwells and indwells uh, the believers on that day and from that day forward. He quotes and points to this passage, and he points to this passage for two reasons. Number one, because of the emphasis that in the last days, God will pour out His Spirit upon people. And not just the nation of Judah or the nation of Israel, but upon all flesh is what it says here. And secondly, the second point of comparison that that Peter is trying to draw our attention to in Acts is that everybody who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That that is what determines the Spirit coming upon us. So if our faith leads to salvation, it leads to the Spirit dwelling within us. And every time we we come together and gather to celebrate the Lord's table, we are celebrating and acknowledging that that same singular Holy Spirit dwells within each and every one of us and unites us together as the body of Christ. Uh, And as we celebrate uh, the Lord's table, and the men can come forward and begin to to pass out the elements, uh, we remember what Christ has done for us as well as our unity. We are the singular body of Christ, and the Spirit dwells within us, making us one singular body. Uh, And as we pass out these elements, what I'd ask you to reflect upon is just that that unity and the, the glory of our salvation. God has brought us into the promises that He gave to Israel. He's grafted us in, not because of anything that we have done, but simply because of His grace and mercy and compassion. And I would urge you to pray silently in your seats and think about that, our salvation that we have in Christ.
Mark chapter 14. It says, And as they were eating, he, speaking of Jesus, took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And that is what we look forward to, to that future day of the Lord when, when the Lord brings justice and peace and he reverses the curse and he makes all things right. On that day, we will be with him. We will have fellowship with him and, and we long for that day. And every time we... We partake of these elements. We proclaim Christ's death and we proclaim our expectation that he will return. So let's partake of this bread together, which represents his body broken on our behalf. And let us partake of this cup, which represents the blood shed for the forgiveness of our sins. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we we come to you now. You are the God of all justice. You are a holy and righteous judge. And you you judge each person according to their deeds. Lord, we thank you that you have extended mercy and grace and forgiveness to all those who would call upon your name. And you have promised this from of old. This is not something new. This is not something that you thought of later. This has been your plan from before the foundation of the world. And for that reason, we come to you, praising you, worshiping you, because of your wisdom, because of your steadfast loving kindness to us and lord we praise you and thank you for sending your son and we praise you and thank you for sending your spirit who now dwells within us and makes us united and lord i thank you for our church body whom you continue to grow and knit together according to your will according to your purposes and i pray that you would continue to do that and you would continue to unite us and use us as a witness in our community. Lord, may we be faithful ambassadors, proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ to the world around us. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, this morning, uh, I would invite you to turn to John chapter 3. We continue to be there. And as you are uh, turning there... We are finally have a plan to collect our uh, communion cups, uh, so those that won't be uh, distracting. So what you can do is you can pass those cups into the, the two center aisle portions, and uh, the ushers will come by and collect them uh, from you. I also have another uh, special announcement. Uh, this Sunday, we, as you have uh, heard already, we have our fellowship lunch because it's a communion Sunday. And, uh, and the first Sunday of June, which is June 2nd, uh, we will do another fellowship lunch, but that is an important day for another reason. That will be our annual members meeting. 
uh, where we will spend time uh, looking at what God has done uh, this past year, and we will speak about our plans for the coming year. We'll give a report uh, to the congregation. Uh, the members will vote on the budget that we propose and we put forward to you all, uh, and we'll get feedback from you uh, on things that we are thinking on and, and planning for the coming future. Uh, so that's a very important uh, Sunday morning, and we'll do that during the service, and then we'll have uh, another potluck and fellowship meal afterwards. And I would uh, just urge you all to to make sure you are here on that day so you know that what will be taking place moving forward here at Ambassador Bible Fellowship. But uh, as you are there in uh, John chapter 3, uh, tell a little story. My, my very first car was a 1993 Honda Civic, and it was originally painted red, uh, but over time, uh, that paint faded into a nice pink color, very masculine, uh, and uh, I have very fond memories of that car, mostly of it breaking down and me being uh, the one trying to, to figure out what in the world was going on. It continually overheated, uh, especially sitting idle in L.A. traffic, because L.A. traffic, like you sit for one minute and then you drive for five seconds and then you sit for another minute. Uh, so my car would overheat constantly, and so I did all that I knew how to do, which was really just pour coolant into the radiator uh, and with a little bit of water. That was kind of the extent of my car repair knowledge uh, at that point in time. And uh, one time I, in, in my hurry after football practice, uh, I forgot to put the radiator cap back on. Uh, so for a car that's struggling to overheat, uh, that's not a good thing to do because all of the coolant just boiled out of the radiator. And so there was absolutely nothing to keep the car cool. Uh, and ultimately, I needed a major repair. I took it in uh, to get repaired and that uh, was quite expensive. But eventually I took that car and made my way out to New Mexico. Uh, and while I was there in New Mexico, I happened to mention to one of my friends on the football team uh, that my car was constantly overheating, and he offered to take a look at it. Uh, and it was at that point in time, after having the car for five years, that he said, oh, I know what's going on. The engine fan doesn't work. And I said, well, what's an engine fan? Uh, but uh, eventually he, he told me and explained that that was what would keep the car cool. And so what he did was he installed a switch underneath the dash where I could control the fan separately from turning the car on and off. And uh, from that point forward, I, the car never really overheated beyond that because the fan was working uh, like it should. And I was so thankful to him for rightly diagnosing and solving the problems. They had taken it in for repairs, but they hadn't told me the fan is the issue. That They treated the symptoms of the problem, the, the overheating and the results of the overheating, but they never told me how to, how to avoid overheating in the first place. And they never addressed that problem uh, as it was present there in my car. And, and oftentimes that is so important. Uh, the world around us uh, has many solutions, but the solutions that they propose are really solutions just for the symptoms of a problem. Uh, they, they have, uh, you know, pills and, and medication that will uh, help us to, to sleep, that will uh, help us to be happy, uh, that will help us to, you know, you name it, they have a pill for it. But uh, as humanity searches for answers, they really just do only that, is they only treat the symptoms. They don't really get down to, well, what is it that's causing me not to be able to sleep? What is it that's causing me to be depressed? All, all of these things that take place, they, they address symptoms without addressing the source. But as we come to our passage this morning in John chapter 3, 
Uh, we, we come to, to verses that help us to understand not just the symptoms, but the source of our problems. Now, it, it gets down to what is really the issue in life, w- which is of the utmost importance because you can treat symptoms forever. Now, and the medications that the world prescribes to us are oftentimes addicting and habit-forming, and again, they don't offer true hope and change. But what Scripture offers, because it offers a right diagnosis, is it gives us solutions to the problems that we face. Uh, And there is hope that comes from that, as we will see. And uh, this morning we're going to look at John chapter 3, verses 19 through 21. But uh, as we have seen in the past, verses 16 through 21 in John chapter 3 are really a commentary of the Apostle John commenting on this conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus that has taken place earlier on in the chapter. In John 3:16 we saw uh, the summary of God's mission to the world and that it was motivated by his love for the world and God gave his son as a sacrifice so that whoever believed would have eternal life. And then in verses 17 and 18 John provided us with additional clarifying details concerning God's mission to the world through His Son, Jesus Christ. That God sent His Son with a purpose not to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. And Jesus didn't need to come to condemn the world because the world already stood under condemnation. We condemn ourselves by rebelling against our Creator and then rejecting the Son whom He gave on our behalf. Jesus didn't need to come and condemn us. We already stand condemned before a holy and righteous God. And now we come to verses 19 through 21. And the Apostle John is going to explain why humanity stands condemned. He's going to dive a little bit more into uh, the reason why we are condemned before a holy God. Why is it? He's going to get down to the source, the real issue, not just the symptoms. But he's going to tell us what has really taken place. And in these verses, the Apostle John is going to use the language of a courtroom trial. He's going to do this on several occasions in his gospel. And we've already seen it back in John chapter 1, when over and over again he referred to John the Baptist as a witness, as somebody who bears testimony. And so here again we see the language of a courtroom. And what's interesting is that in the other gospel accounts, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, they also kind of treat things as a, uh, a courtroom drama, but uh, it's a little bit different. In, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus is the one on trial. Uh, and, and the gospel authors are writing to try and prove to us that he is the Son of God and that he is the Messiah. That is what is being debated. They're trying to demonstrate and present evidence that Jesus is the Son of God. But in John's gospel, something very different is happening. See, John never debates whether or not Jesus is God. He doesn't try and prove that. He assumes it from the very beginning. That's what we saw in John 1. 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. From the very beginning of his gospel, John is saying Jesus is the Son of God that you need to believe in. So the trial in John's gospel is not trying to prove that Jesus is the Son of God. The trial in John's gospel is against humanity. John is saying humanity is guilty for rejecting the Son of God. He just assumes Jesus is the one you need to believe in, and now all of the world is guilty because they have turned from Christ. When he came to the world, the world did not receive him or know him, even though he created the world. 
That is what is at stake here in John's Gospel. And as we come to these verses, what we see is John's case against humanity, or really God's case against humanity. And as he presents his case in these verses, we'll see why the world stands condemned. Uh, And we'll see a connection between our actions and our affections. What we love, what we hate, is connected with what we do. They reinforce one another. And in these verses, uh, what we will see is that how there's this cycle uh, of our, our love, and then we act upon what we love, and then... Because we are doing that, it just affirms this cycle of, uh, I guess, strengthening our affection for what John's going to call the darkness. And then we, we sin, and then our love for the darkness grows, and it's going just to repeat itself over and over. And as I, as I preach this morning, I'm going to use the term the world, and I'm going to use the, the term humanity interchangeably. That's what's at stake here. But, but here's the key thing that I want to, to keep in mind. Okay, when, I, when I speak of the world and humanity, I'm not saying that this does not apply to us. I'm not saying look at the people outside of the four walls of our church and look at how sinful they are. That, that's, that's exactly not what I'm saying. What we need to understand is what John says about the world here is just as true about us. See, John's going to show us who and what we are in our natural state, in our in the sinfulness of our hearts. That's what's going to be laid bare this morning. So this isn't something to to be weaponized against the world outside of us. This is something that is intended to humble us. It gives us insight into our own souls and what we are like and what uh, we were, or I guess, our lostness before we came to believe in Christ. So John's going to present his case against humanity. And this is how he goes about presenting it. That he begins by summarizing his case. There's going to be three parts to uh, this case against humanity. And the first portion is going to be uh, in verse 19. Where he's going to to summarize uh, or make an opening statement in the case against humanity. And then in verse 20, he's going to present evidence to us that confirmed the case against humanity. And then verse 21... He's going to make a contrast. He's going to bring a witness to the stand. And this is going to be a contrasting witness brought to the stand to bring clarity and to emphasize the sinfulness of the world. As we look at these three parts, we'll see that they build upon one another and have great similarities and differences. But read along with me. John chapter 3, beginning in verse 19. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed but whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So the first part of this uh, case that he presents to us, as I said, is the opening statement in the case against humanity. Basically, that humanity has an affinity for darkness. You could say that humanity loves darkness. Uh, And he states this emphatically. He introduces this portion by saying this is the judgment. This is the declaration of God. This is the verdict that has come down after careful evaluation of humanity. This is what has been determined. And in making this judgment, there's two components. 
first that the light has come into the world, speaking of Christ. The light refers to Jesus, even as has been echoed already earlier in the gospel, that Jesus is the light of the world. That's what Jesus is going to say himself in John chapter 8, verse 12. He has come into the world and the world did not know him, even though he created the world. So the light came into the world and the people's response, the people loved the darkness rather than the light. Rather than embracing the light, rather than loving Jesus, the world loved darkness. They preferred darkness over the light. And what is revealed here shows the source of our problems. That we run from the light. We love the darkness. We love sin. That is what is meant by the darkness here. All that is unholy, all that is impure, all that is uh, in rebellion against God. One of the Puritans said that, that sin is every word, work, or wish that is contrary to God's law. That is what sin is and that is what we love. And that is the real source of our problems. And to have a love for darkness means to take pleasure in darkness. It means that you hold it in high esteem, that you gain satisfaction from it. And that is what we mean when we say that we love an object or an idea or an activity. If I say I love football, it doesn't mean that I physically love the football in my room. I may have uh, that kind of... Uh, memory and fondness of it, but it it means that I gain satisfaction and pleasure from watching or playing football. If I say I love pizza, it means I enjoy consuming it in all of its gluten glory. Uh, Uh, That is what I mean. And and when John says that, that people loved the darkness, it means that we gained satisfaction, that we enjoy sinning. And that is the root of our problem. Humanity loves sin. And John even explains why this is true. He says, because their works were evil. And this is where we see the connection between our actions and our affections. That what we do will eventually grab a hold of our heart and draw us toward it. And and the same is also true. Our feet will follow our heart and our heart will follow our feet. And in our culture, we've elevated love to such an extent that it has become the barometer for morality. If you just do something in love, then it's got to be good, right? That seems to be what our society is saying. But the conversation about love has left out the object of love. What is it that we should love? To love the wrong thing can be extremely dangerous. And for people to act in love to their own detriment... It's something that takes place all the time. Now, we see this if you, if you keep your finger here in John and, and turn over to the book of Proverbs, chapter 7. I immediately thought of this. Solomon, writing to his son, speaks of a situation trying to, to show his son that, yeah, sometimes acting in love can get you into a whole lot of trouble. Sometimes acting in love can lead to your own destruction. Proverbs chapter 7, beginning of verse 6, Solomon again trying to impart wisdom to his son and, and show him, hey, this is what takes place if you follow and pursue the wrong thing. It says, for at the window of my house, I have looked out through my lattice and I have seen among the simple. I have perceived among the youth, the young man lacking sense, passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house, speaking of the 
uh, the promiscuous woman says in the twilight in the evening at the time of night and darkness and behold the woman meets him and dressed as a prostitute wily of heart she is loud and wayward her feet do not stay at home now in the street now in the market and in every corner she lies and waits she seizes him and kisses him and with bold face she says to him i had to offer sacrifices and today i have paid my vow so now i have come out to meet you to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. I have spread my couch with coverings, colored linens with Egyptian linen. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh and aloes and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love, for my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him. At full moon he will come home. With much seductive speech she persuades him. With her smooth talk she compels him all at once. He follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver. As a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. So here you have a young man. And according to the world standards, he's just acting in love. He's just following his heart. But what's the warning there in Proverbs? What will it ultimately cost him? His life. And, and that is the perfect picture of sin. Sin is attractive on the outside. It tries to get us by alluring us. And look at how enjoyable, how pleasurable this will be. And you, you love me. You, you love doing this. But what we don't often think about and what sin doesn't advertise is the death that is the ultimate culmination, the ultimate judgment. That is what is conveniently left out by the world. So simply acting in love can be extremely dangerous. Loving the wrong thing can lead to our destruction. And we see in here in the Gospel of John, that is exactly what we naturally do. We naturally love sin, and that is the root of our problem. And we have to keep in mind that, that our love for the darkness is not something that was forced upon us. This is something that we freely chose. We chose to love darkness rather than the light. The natural man... Is immersed in wrongdoing. He's happy exactly where he is. And we have to understand that is our tendency. That will always be the draw upon our heart. That sin, in all of its allurement, will be appealing to us. And now I've told youth students on several occasions that if you want to know more about God, you should read the Bible. And they say, okay, well, yeah, that's obvious. And they say, okay, well, if you want to know more about the world around you, you should read the bible if you want to know more about people in the world you should read the bible and, and you'd probably be in agreement with me on all of those things but here's something that you probably don't think about where do you go if you want to better understand yourself where do you go if you really want to understand what's going on and taking place in your own heart you should read the bible because what the word does is it pierces to the division of soul and spirit. It determines the thoughts and intentions that we have within us that even we don't understand. But that's what the Word of God does. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. And it gets to the heart of what we are really thinking and what really motivates our actions. And what we need to see from this is that that is our issue. That is at the core of all of our problems, that we love sin. We love the darkness. 
And that is also the greatest issue in the world around us. And as I said, this is not ammunition to be stored up to be fired later against others. This is a this is a cyanide capsule hidden away in our tooth that in the right moment we need to take it to humble ourselves. That, hey, except for the grace of God, we would be still in that condition. We would still be loving the darkness rather than the light. And John gives us his opening statement. He summarizes the case against humanity here in this verse. And then he goes on to present evidence in the next verse, verse 20. You say the confirming evidence in the case against humanity is that humanity hates and fears the light. Verse 20. Read with me. It says, For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. And with that first statement, for everyone who does wicked things hates the light, he's, he's beginning to, to clarify and characterize people. He's identifying a group of people, everyone who does wicked things hates the light. And the idea here is, the, uh, is continually a doing something. It's a habitual action. Those who habitually perform evil and wickedness. And wicked things is the idea of those things that are morally substandard, that fall short of what God is calling us to. And those who are continually practicing evil reveal that in their hearts they hate the light. And from there he continues to develop this idea. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and... Because they hate the light, that then has a connection with their actions. Because they hate the light, what do they do? They do not come to the light. And they don't come to the light because they don't want their works to be exposed. That's what light does. Light shines in the darkness and it reveals what the darkness covered. And when the light of Christ shines in the darkness of our sin, we are exposed. And the, the idea behind that word exposed is the idea of being closely scrutinized or carefully examined. It's the same word later used in John chapter 16, verse 8, to speak of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. That verse says, and when he comes, he will convict, and there's that word, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. That's what the Spirit does. He comes and lays bare what is taking place in the human heart shows us what is really going on inside of us. That's how the Spirit convicts the world. And in similar fashion, the world runs away from the light of Christ because it exposes them. And it shows both their hatred of the light and their fear of the light. Uh, I remember my parents telling me stories about their first apartment on married student housing at their university. Uh, and they... They had a little bit of an infestation there in that married housing apartment building. Uh, cockroaches. Uh, and they said they had so many cockroaches uh, that they, before they would open up the cupboards, they would chatter their fingers on uh, the cupboard doors to make sure that the roaches ran away before opening it. My mom said she would come into the kitchen and she would turn on the light. And what do cockroaches do when the light comes on? They run. They scatter. It's almost like they know how much we hate them and that judgment is coming in the form of a shoe or something else, right? That they know as soon as that light goes on, as soon as they are seen, they better scatter. Oh, in the same way, humanity tends to understand that when the light of Christ shines upon us, we better do something. 
that we better scatter because we really understand our sinfulness. We really do understand that God is holy and we can't in and of ourselves come and stand before him. That is a sobering and scary thing. So our natural response to the light when it comes on, when it shines in our life, our natural response is to flee, to run. That is what we see here. Additionally, what we see here in this verse is that unbelief is not a matter of the head. It is a matter of the heart. It is not an intellectual issue. It is a moral issue. The issue of unbelief is not a misunderstanding of facts. It is a misguided love. It's not that we need more information about the light. It's not that we're misunderstanding the light. The light of Christ has shown. We see it. We behold it. All the information that we need is there available to us, but we run from that light. We naturally love sin. And as a result of our love for the darkness, we hate and fear the light of Christ because it reveals who we are. It exposes us. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this in one of his sermons. He says, the real trouble is that by nature we love the darkness. That is the very essence of sin. And here, of course, is where we go wrong. We tend to think of sin as merely doing wrong. Of course, that is included, but that is not the real essence of sin. It is not the wrong things we do. The real trouble is the fact that we ever desire to do them. That is the trouble. And whatever makes us desire to do such things, there is only one answer. That men loved darkness. It is not merely that they live in it and do things that are characteristic of it. They love it. They like it. They gloat in it so much that they will not turn to the light. And that is where we need the Word of God to rightly diagnose our issues, to rightly diagnose what is really taking place in our hearts and in our lives. And I would just uh, would add this of one of the joys of, of doing biblical counseling. One of the, the great privileges of counseling and, and pastoral ministry is to see lives transformed, as the, the light of Christ shines upon a situation, uh, as the Word of God comes to bear. Now, sometimes in counseling, as you bring truth, as, you, as someone comes in with their problems and they're presenting these issues, and they're really oftentimes just presenting symptoms. This, this is what's going on. We're having conflicts and, and, and marital issues. Well, really, that's, that's symptomatic. But what's the source? that you love darkness. You want what you want, when you want it, how you want it. And one of the joys of biblical counseling is seeing that you get to kind of be a reflection of the light of Christ. But that is two, two ways of responding to that. Sometimes we see people, when the light is shown, they say, okay. And they kind of do, start doing the head nodding thing during the counseling. And you're like, okay, I think this is going to be probably our last session. Because they don't seem to, to be receiving what I'm saying. They don't seem to be receiving the truth. And I'm not shocked when that happens. I'm heartbroken. 
But I'm not shocked. And again, I'm not shocked because this is what God's word says. That some people, when the light of Christ shines, they run. But at other times, when you present the word to people, they begin to rejoice. They begin to weep because now they finally begin to understand what has been going on. See, they've been, they've been seeing the symptoms and suffering from the symptoms of sin, but they haven't really had any solutions. They haven't had the truth. They haven't had the light of Christ shine upon their problems and their situations. And when they begin to respond to it and embrace it, that's when change really begins to take place. That's what really begins to transform lives. And it's heartbreaking to see people walk away, but what a joy it is to see people walk towards the light, which is what John's going to to get to in his last portion of his presenting his case. But before we, we get to that, here's, here's one more thing to take away and what we see here. And this is true both for the believer and for the unbeliever. That sin will keep you from Christ, but Christ will also keep you from sin. That habitual sin in the life of an unbeliever is what causes them to fear the light. I don't want to go and, and, and be exposed They'll be seen for what they truly are. And in the same way, we as believers, can, we can follow in that same pattern. That we, we can little by little fall into a pattern of sin, and then we allow that sin to draw us away from the Lord. Right? If, you, if you just think about your own life experience, when you've been in a season of sin, have you wanted to come to the Lord in prayer? Have you wanted to go study God's Word on your own? Have you even wanted to come to church? See, those are the moments where you're like, I don't want to be around any portion of the light. But that's when you need it the most. And that's when you need to understand, again, sin will keep you from Christ, but Christ will keep you from sin. He is going to be the solution. He's the one that you need to turn to, not just in a crisis situation. That, man, I just do this huge blunder of sin, and now I'm dealing with all the consequences. Now I run to Christ. It's far better to be crisis prevention rather than crisis management. And we need to always be pursuing Christ. He is the remedy to this heart problem. And the light of Christ shining upon our lives is the ray of hope that we need. We all in our natural state stand condemned before a holy God. Not merely because we have committed some sins but because we love sin, because we desire to commit sin, we naturally love darkness. And, and when we think in those terms, it makes our salvation even that much more remarkable. Because in salvation, we have a demonstration of the love of God that He gave His Son for sinners, for those who loved the darkness. Think about that. God sent the light for people who love darkness. Sacrificed His Son. That is the... Then in the miracle of salvation, we are born again and we look to Christ in faith and our hearts are transformed. And even born again, we are still sinful. We still have an attraction to sin. And while we are here on this earth, we will still be battling against those temptations to sin. We still battle those desires. But what John highlights in this final verse, we see him draw this, this contrast between the one who does wicked things and the one who does what is true, what he makes is going to be the, the contrasting witness of those who are born again. 
And the believers come to the light. This is the, the third portion of the case against humanity. Look with me at verse 21. It says, But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. And while the ESV translates uh, the word does uh, in verse 20 and 21, really those are two different Greek words. Uh, I'm not sure why the ESV doesn't do a better job of bringing out, hey, these are two different words that kind of with, with similar ideas. In verse 20, the verbal idea is whoever practices evil. And in verse 21, the idea could be translated whoever works the truth. And it's not just whoever works truth, but whoever works the truth. To, to emphasize, there are many ways to sin. There are many ways to do evil. But there's only one way to work the truth. And that is by walking and working in Christ. Jesus in John 14:6 said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And doing what is true is a, a Hebrew way of saying to act faithfully. It's a Hebrewism. And the one who acts faithfully comes to the light rather than running from it. And in coming to the light, there's already an understanding that when you, when you come to the light, what's going to happen? You're going to be revealed. You are going to be seen and exposed. And those who come to the light already understand that. But, but John also gives us insight into why we come to the light. And what we see is that those who come to the light do it for the very reason of being revealed, of, of being exposed. And the idea of behind the words of clearly seen is the idea of, of publicly revealed. It's the idea of being made visible, that when we come to the light, we are made visible to others. We are made visible to God to ourselves and those who believe who have been born again have no reservation about being seen in the light of Christ. Because the, the, the big thing that, that takes place when, when we allow the light of Christ to shine in our lives, what is revealed is not our sinfulness, but God's working. That, that is the, the difference in this verse uh, between verse 20 and in verse 21. That we welcome it and we make clear that it is God who has worked in us. It is not in us in and of our own strength doing what is good. It says that what is revealed is that the works that we have done have been carried out in and through the power of God, not just in ourselves. So anything that you do, the working of the truth, it's not that you doing it on your own. It's God doing it through you. To put it another way, in salvation... God takes cockroaches and he turns them into moths. That's what's happened. What does a moth do? Cockroaches run from light, but moths are drawn to it, even to their own detriment, right? Like they just, I can't stop, I can't pull away. They just, uh, they hone in and scientists aren't really sure why that takes place. They believe it might have something to do with how they, they navigate. They, they hone in on light and then they, they fly towards it. But, but it's amazing and that should be us. As believers, and that will be what believers actually do, that rather than running from the light, we are drawn towards it inescapably. And it's important to note again that that there is a contrast being made between verses 21 and 20, but it's not an exact parallel. See, in verse 20, those who do evil do so because of their own desires. 
They work evil because that is what is going on within them. But those who do good, they do that because God has worked in them. Not because of, again, our own innate goodness, but because that is what takes place. That is the new birth. That is regeneration. That is us receiving a new heart with new desires where we no longer have the same desire for sin. It's still there, but now we also have a desire to pursue Christ and are drawn towards the light. And as we look at this contrast, as as we see it here, we see that how we respond to the light of Christ is really going to reveal whether or not we have been born again, whether or not we truly believe in Christ. Based upon, hey, when, when the light of Christ shines, when I'm, when I'm reading the Word of God and that light of Christ shines upon that sin that I have held most dear, what do we then do? Do I run? Do I cover? Do I say, oh, I'll dismiss that. That's not that serious. Or do I say, no, what God's Word says is true. What Christ is saying here is true. And now that light needs to shine into my life even that darkness, even, even where I, I try to hide all of my sin, it needs to shine there. And when the light of Christ shines on our deepest, darkest sins, that's when we have hope. That's when we have solutions, not just ongoing symptoms. That's what we see in this passage. We're confronted with a question which you probably never thought of, but are you a roach or are you a moth? That, that is what we are confronted with. Do we run from the light or are we drawn to it? Do we accept the word of Christ or do we reject it? It's a piercing question. And it's one that we have to answer on an ongoing basis. Because even as I said, even as a believer, sin can harden our hearts. That's what we see in Hebrews. That we are to exhort and encourage one another as long as it's called today. So that nobody develops a hardness of heart that comes from the deceitfulness of sin. Sin will harden your heart towards the Lord. You'll go back to all of your old patterns and ways of life. And that is why we need to constantly and continually pursue Christ. And that is the case against humanity that John has given us. An opening statement, confirming evidence, and then a contrasting witness. We've seen that that all of us, all of humanity, naturally loves darkness and hates and fears the light. And that is why we all stand condemned before a holy God. And these three verses explain our condemnation. They explain our sinfulness and they explain, 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 here we go. Uh, they explain what is really going on in our hearts and in our lives. Oftentimes, when I'm sharing the gospel with somebody, they'll, after hearing the truth, they'll kind of change the the course of the conversation. Well, what about this? And they begin to to place all of these objections. In essence, in doing that, they begin to put me on trial uh, for all all of these things that I have believed. And they, they have these questions but they're phrased as questions but they're really objections to what the word of god says they're really objections to who christ is or what he calls us to do and to be if we are following him and while a person might really want answers to those questions those those questions are not really the issue at hand and how do i know that well this passage the the real issue is not intellectual it's moral and it's unbelief as i said earlier 
But because the solution to unbelief is faith, because the solution to our greatest problems is faith, that brings me hope. And I'm so thankful that God has chosen to save us by grace through faith. So think of it this way. If God had had said, this is your deepest and, and, and darkest issue, that you love the darkness, and then said, your salvation from that darkness is going to be accomplished by you doing works, and you name whatever it is. If he says that, there's immediately going to be some people that cannot do that, that cannot accomplish whatever works God would require of us. What hope would that be, salvation by works? Hey, you have, this is your deepest, darkest issue, and now you have to go earn your way out of it. What hope does that bring to the terminally ill cancer patient in the hospital bed? They can't get out of bed. So what hope does that bring them? Here's your darkest issue. Here's the root of all of your problems. That doesn't help them. Additionally, you might say that we are thankful that God has not chosen to save us to transform our lives based upon some secret or special knowledge that we have to go and seek out, right? Because maybe we're not able to, to comprehend the, the lofty philosophy. Maybe we're not able to, to find the books where we need to, to read and understand that. And even thinking through, for, for the grand course of history, most of humanity has not even been able to read But what God has done, what we see here in John chapter 3, in this conversation between Nicodemus and Jesus and then in John's commentary, is that we have so much reason to praise God for His wisdom in saying that I'm going to transform lives. I'm going to offer salvation, not by works, not by secret or special knowledge, but by faith. See, faith is accessible to everybody. Faith is something that that hospital patient can extend. Faith is something that even the smallest of children can demonstrate. And what we see in the gospel message summarized here in John chapter 3 can be comprehended by everybody. It can be summarized in a minute. There is a holy God a kind and loving God, that humanity, rather than loving that God, has rejected Him and loved darkness instead. And so now we stand condemned, and now our only hope is to look to the one whom God, that loving God, sent, Jesus Christ. He sent Him to live a perfect life, to die a sacrificial death, and then to be raised from the grave. That is the purity and simplicity of the gospel. That message, and now we are called to respond to it in faith. That is something anybody can do. And that is what we are all called to. And that is the solution to the most significant of all diagnoses of what is really going on in our hearts. The real issue to our problems. The source, not just the symptom, is that we love sin rather than loving God. That's why we need to look to Christ in faith. And when we do that, God gives us a new heart. He transforms our desire, our loves, all of those things. And the purpose of all of these these verses, going back to to John chapter 3, verse 1, 
is to show us and demonstrate that, that transformation, hope, salvation, eternal life, all of that comes, again, not through our own efforts, but simply by looking to Christ in faith. In the same way as that bronze serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, and all the Israelites had to do, it's fiery serpents slithering around everywhere, and they're told, just look to this bronze statue and you'll be saved. It's simple. It's not complicated. And that is how we are to look at Christ, trusting not in ourselves, not relying upon our own strength, our own wisdom, our own cleverness, but looking to Christ. That is what brings us hope and transformation. If you are here this morning and you, you have not yet looked to Christ in faith, I would urge you to come speak with me. Come speak with the person who invited you here this morning. We would long for you to, to recognize your greatest need and to see Christ as the greatest of saviors. And it is him that we now serve and that we long to tell others about. If we know this diagnosis, if we know this is the real issue in the hearts of men, we have a responsibility, a calling to go and speak with others about it. Amen? That is what we must do and what we long to do as ambassadors for Christ. Let's pray together. Gracious God, Father, we thank you and worship you. We thank you for your word, for its truth. Lord, it does indeed pierce our heart. It pierces our soul. It cuts us deep to see that we are not merely sinful because we commit sinful acts, but Lord, we are sinful because we desire sin over you in the first place. Father, we come to you asking for your forgiveness in the name of Christ, that you would wash us, that you would cleanse us, that you would transform our hearts and our minds, that you would help us to to battle against those temptations that still reside within us. Lord, that you would make us new and make us whole, and that we would, rather than running from the light, that we would run to it. And may your light continue to shine in our lives through your risen and resurrected and glorified Son, through your written word that you have given to us, through your people who speak your word into our lives. Lord, we need one another. And I pray that you would use one another, each of us, just to continue to shine the light of Christ, to speak your word, the word of truth. And Lord, may we respond rightly. May we be known as those who work what is true, who do what is true, rather than those who do wicked things. Lord, transform our lives that we might be a faithful testimony to the world around us. And Lord, again, may these truths break our own hearts first. And may it give us insight into the world around us, but Lord, may it never lead to our hatred of the world. Lord, you love the world and you have called us to do the same. 
So may we go forward with this gospel message on our lips. That salvation comes not by works. Salvation comes not by special knowledge. But salvation comes through your Son. Your only Son whom you have given on our behalf. Whose blood was shed. Whose body was broken. And in whose name we pray. Amen.